This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I am Dr Doolittle and we have a lot to discuss this morning. First up... Welcome to 2019. Yay! It's our first show back. So a massive thanks to everyone who filled in over summer and and I hope you enjoyed the different shows that were on and the uh, amazing variability that 3RRR has to offer. But back to business. On the show today, we have a special guest, Catherine Devaney, author, comedian, feminist, politician, teacher, motivator, opinionator and warrior for all things good. Catherine is well known for her writing courses. In fact, that's how I met her and we eventually wrote a book together. But more recently, Catherine has ventured into writing courses for people with cancer and she's joining us in a very short time to explain what it's all about. Also in the studio, Dr Training Wheels, our resident medical student. Now, Trainer Wheels has been looking at the news and she's going to tell us about EAT, E-A-T, the Lancet Commission on Food, the planet and health. I feel like I need a deep voice for that one. Plus, Cyber Sue, our nurse with a special interest in emerging technologies and health, and she's going to talk about some of those emerging technologies today. And finally, the panel beater, the Vincent Van Gogh of radiotherapy. He knows a lot about everything. Today, the panel beater has masculinity in his sights. And I'm not just talking about me. He's looking at some guidelines out of the US Psychology Association addressing how psychologists, I can't even say it after 30 years in the business, how psychologists um, should work with men and boys. So let's get this show on the road and start with some news. Doctor, doctor. They're laughing at me, Vincent Van Gogh. <laughs> they're, they're claiming I pulled that one out of my ass, which is probably quite correct. I was what checking is... if I had both my ears. <laughs> How are you, gang? 2019, first show back. Off to a good start. Excitement. Great to be back. Great I didn't even back. have my headphones on. I've put them on now, so I actually feel like I'm talking in the, the radio. room now. Well, it's very echoey on mine. Um, so, uh, give me some news, guys. How are you? All? Cyber Sue. I'm awesome. Have you had a good break over summer? I had a great break and it's all good. New year ahead of us. Have you been working here on holidays? Um, I've been working most of the time, but, you know, flexy. Yeah, I love it when people hold up society. Has everyone been working? You're a medical student, I'm training wheels. No, I've been busy being a mum, though. Yeah, true. How old is the young one now? Six months? Five. Five? Yeah. All going well? Yeah, she's very sweet. We need a radio report. All going well? She's good. She's good. Yeah, the summary? Just the summary. She's good. She's good. good. She's good. She's cute. She's fun. (laughs) And what about you, Vincent Van Gogh? I mean, um, panel beta? Yeah, painting sound files. Um, I've been editing and writing. Yeah. What, for a thesis awesome. or something? Yeah, a few different things. God, yeah. you guys have all been working Very hard because, you know, someone asked me what I've been doing, please. Oh, what have you, yeah. please. I'm <laughs> eager to know. What have you been up to? I'm on six months long service leave. You're joking. No. I kid ye not. Didn't you just start Didn't, a yeah. new job? I, no, two years ago. That's not a very long service. Oh, for me it is. Oh, for me two years. It's, it's quite a miracle I lasted so long. I'm famously lazy. But six whole months. So I've had a month doing nothing and now I'm, I'm, off, I'm off to one of those you know, ex- exotic destinations. You look like your vitamin D levels might be okay. Is that mean I'm suntanned? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you I'm a little bit. You're not bad yourself, panel leader. Yeah. Oh, 
Say all the nice things. And not that this is radio-friendly, but I've gone unshaven look too. I've been clipping my little beard, but I've gone unshaven. Hey, um, should we get on to the show or should we just continue gossiping? Um, (laughs) Who are we going to start with? Let's start with this um, Eat Business um, trainer. What's that all about? Sure thing. So the Eat Lancet Commission is this huge report that came out a few weeks ago on the 17th of January, and it's a really big deal. I sort of missed the whole thing, obviously, because I'm sort of in my little bubble. But well, I, so did I, to be honest. Yeah, okay. Well, when you sent it deal. around, I looked at it and thought, oh, that's a big deal. Yeah, yeah, it is a big deal. So the Eat Lancet Commission is a huge report written by 60 scientists from all different disciplines all over the world. 17. By the way, I bet you it's been covered on Einstein and GoGo Probably. in extreme detail all last year, and we just totally ignored it. Anyway, keep yeah, going. Yeah, so let's just do a sort of quick radiotherapy yeah, catch up. Catching um, up. <laughs> Uh, it's got scientists from all over the world have contributed to this report, and it's the first time ever that a scientific consensus has been reached about what is a healthy diet, not just for people but also for the planet. So one of their one of the, their aims was to answer the question: Can we feed a future population of ten billion people a healthy diet? within planetary boundaries. And I've read the conclusion. Pizza, obviously, yes, if we just give everyone pizza. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, okay, so can we? Well, that's what the report says, yes, if we make some small changes. Do you want me to jump to what the diet is? Yeah, yeah, because we're just doing summary news. So, yeah, hit us with... Because people can always jump on the website. It was very easy to find. Yeah, sure. So the good thing is that it's a massive document, and I haven't read the whole thing because it's very long, but they've got these good summaries for different interested parties. So there's a summary for the general population, one for health professionals, one for chefs, one for policymakers, and you can have a quick read through those and see what the main kind of messages are of the report, which is great. Um, But the diet is... They say that proteins should primarily be sourced from plants where possible. Yep. Some fish or alternative sources of omega-3 fatty acids and optional modest consumption of chicken, eggs and low intakes of red meat. Right, but not no intakes of red meat. Well, you, it's optional. Yeah. So you can... Because I've seen this debate, you know, in various articles in the conversation over the last year or two about things like veganism and various other diets. And it seems to me they always come to the conclusion that the best diet for the planet, at least in the conversation, which isn't 60 scientists from around the world from Lancet, but it's normally a tiny bit of red meat because there's certain places that... Um, Red meat's quite efficient in some ways, but ter- terrible in other ways. And they nearly always say a tiny bit, and then they say a bit of fish, a bit of chicken, and you know, but the majority vegetables. That's right. So this, the Lancet report says that we should be eating no more than ninety-eight grams of red meat a week. Oh, which good. Is I, wonderful. I, it's specifically ninety-eight yeah. grams. <laughs> yeah. Everybody weigh your steak. I had, I had that yesterday. That, so what is it? Yeah, for right. breakfast. Or? Right. So can some people, listeners out there, please cut back to make up for me? <laughs> Um, yeah, so less than 98 grams of red meat, less than 203 grams of chicken, and less than 196 grams of fish. The rest should be veggies. Fair enough. Yeah, that's the idea. And then nuts and um, legumes and fruit, obviously, is the rest of it. Can I sidetrack you slightly? Because I, dis- I have this discussion regularly with my vegan friends, and I had it last night over the dinner table at the first meal I had because I had two meals last night. Um, I had a, yeah, it was terrible. <laughs> two um, weeks' worth of yeah, red meat, I yeah. assume. But, um, you know, of course the argument came to me that there's a whole lot of other reasons why you shouldn't eat red meat, and it's essentially about that animals have a soul or they're conscious or um, they can suffer, which, you know, I've always thought is utter bullshit. I've always why? thought, I don't see why plants can't have a soul. I don't see why plants control their environment. Plants do a whole lot of things to communicate with each other, and it just seems to me like an inherently narcissistic human thing to say 
our features of consciousness are the most special features in the um, universe when in actual fact there's, you know, there's a million other different characteristics you could focus on. I, I sure. just don't get it. But then why and, don't you need a shooting me down. And why how, don't you how, need a person? Why do we have... But why are animals special ahead of plants? Why should we be eating animals over plants? Explain to me. <laughs> First of In all, how did, the, 30 seconds. how did the dinner party end? <laughs> Having another dinner. Yeah, the usual way they threw me out. Yeah, right. <laughs> they called an Uber and they said, this one's for you, Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> I guess if you're, if you're not accepting the difference between the sentience of an animal and a plant, yeah, what's the difference between the sentience of an animal and a human? And if there's none, no, then why yeah. don't you eat a human? And especially when in that scenario, in that extreme scenario, humans have the capacity to give consent to be eaten. So if we can grow extra limbs, as we might be able to do one day, could you conceivably give consent to sell your limb? Or extra ears, Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I wouldn't have a problem. Um, I'm up for it. But, but, I mean, I think those people who create that binary, mm. so if, it's, if it's okay to eat animals and it's okay to eat plants, I think that's still that's a fairly marginal approach, you know. So it's more a case of um, most vegans, I think, would and vegetarians would would say that they're after maximising harm minimisation. So if they accidentally step on an insect, well, yeah, they've killed a, um, an, another living organism. Yeah, and lots um, of insects are killed in the harvesting. In the harvesting, etc. Yeah, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. My problem is saying that consciousness is somehow special and that saying plants don't have any degree of consciousness. Anyway, but but not get too sidetracked. <laughs> I mean, um, there are people called fruitar- fruititarians, I think, who yep. only eat fruit and vegetables that has already fallen from That's the right. tree. And the Jain religion in India. They yeah. Yeah. exactly. The yeah. And at the end of the day, each to their own. That's Have your beliefs. I suppose that's the main thing. Um, fair enough. If, you can, if you're happy with them, I'm happy for you. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> as long as you're happy with me and don't wait for me outside the show. Um, and protest me. Hey, uh, any final concluding comments, or should we just say go I to the website? I reckon it's worth having a look at it. Yeah, yeah. check yeah. out the website. It's really detailed. And it looked like a flash there. website too. It is it looked very like flash. Nice, nice and, photos. Yeah. And, and relatively simultaneously, the uh, Canadian Health Department came out with their updated national guidelines, and they almost mirrored this Eat Lancet results. But one significant, you know, the, um, the National Departments of Health, they normally put some kind of infographic, so I'll use a plate or a pyramid mm. or whatever like this. And so they've created a plate and um, conspicuous by its absence on this particular plate is no dairy at all. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, no dairy? No dairy. So instead of like where... So what do you put on biscuits On the infographic dinner? normally. <laughs> on the infographic, you know, previously you'd have a glass of milk next yeah. to the plate. You know, yeah, now it's just a glass of water. The Lancet... Study says moderate levels of dairy consumption is an option. Yeah. Zero to five hundred grams per day of dairy. I think. I oh, actually, I might stand corrected. I think maybe the Canadian had a, a, like a slice of cheese or something. Yeah, it'd be the, very little or yogurt or something. Yeah, mm. for, to put on your biscuit before dinner. <laughs> um, so over to you, panel Betty. You were going to tell us about um, well, masculinity. Well, not so much about masculinity per se, but about um, the American Psychological Association's guidelines that were released, in fact, last August, but um, over summer um, hit social media and then blew up um, to call blimey. Um, so I love call blimey level. <laughs> yeah. You know, Twitter's going crazy it's if it's nuts. called blimey level. Yeah. <laughs> and so these guidelines are the, um, notable for a few reasons. First of all, it's the first time the APA has um, produced guidelines uh, for health professionals and their treatment, um, therapeutic treatment of men and boys. So first time ever. Which is a hats off. Notable in itself. Um, um, but it's it, 
it, it's been divisive for a few reasons. I'll just start with a quick quote on on from the APA about what they saw as as the purpose of this. Um, they wanted to draw attention to health professionals on how power, privilege, and sexism work both by conferring benefits to men and trapping them in narrow roles. Okay. What were they? Power, privilege, and Power, privilege, and sexism, sexism work both by conferring benefits to men and trapping them in narrow roles. So, at the outset, they're acknowledging that there are some positives to masculinity and, and negatives to masculinity. Um, these amounted to ten guidelines um, for these experts to deal with with men and boys. Things like relationships, things like um, dealing with men who are having trouble seeking help that they need, and and these sorts of things. Um, one of the criticisms is that it doesn't um, uh, uh, necessarily define toxic masculinity, although it's referred to, but it does define um, traditional masculinity and it's around characteristics of stoicism, competitiveness and aggression um, and then goes on to talk about how this is toxic, potentially toxic, um, if not overtly toxic, to both men and women. And they point to things like violence and um, issues around um, that sort of consequence of, of what they're calling traditional masculinity, toxic masculinity. So I'll just, for the purpose of time, I'll just, in the most um, shorthanded way, set out the two sides of the debate, really. Um, one person um, with some uh, heft, some weight behind him is um, Professor Stephen Pinker, from um, um, uh, pre- professor of psychology at Harvard. People may know him at the moment because he's got a bestseller at the moment called Enlightenment Now. I first came across him in two, early 2000s with a book called The Blank Slate, the denial of human nature. And he talks about psychology and what is, you know, is there such a thing as human nature? So you can probably already tell that um, with somebody who's approaching psychology from that perspective, he's, he's considering the issues in two ways, principally, as I understand his argument. First of all, he's, he's saying that, um, th- that the guidelines are differentiating between men and women as if those differences are just entirely socially constructed, that there is no natural way, so to speak, natural behaviour. That is masculine, that is feminine. Yep. And secondly, that um, it's suggesting that repressing emotion is bad and to express emotions is good. How do we jump to that? That just seems like a... Well, his reading of the guidelines is reaching that conclusion. Oh, that's his criticism of the guidelines. Yeah. His commentary. He's, he's reaching that... Yep. Uh, he's, he's taking that interpretation that repression of emotion is bad, is inherently bad, and that the expression of emotion is good. Um, so, And then he goes to point to evidence, um, uh, research evidence, um, as you'd expect uh, somebody of his stature to do, um, and talks about research, and he cites it, and we can point to people on the website... Um, uh, that people who have greater levels of self-control, i.e. that kind of stoicism, um, lead healthier lives. They get better grades, better, better performing academically. Um, they have fewer eating disorders and addiction issues. Um, they've got lower levels of depression, anxiety. And they have stronger friendships and relationships. Um, I always get told about these things, though, because every one of these studies that I've ever seen struggles to separate the chicken from the egg. And, you know, it's like the mm. self-esteem movement. You know, if you've got a high self-esteem, everything goes great. Yeah, but if everything goes great, that's why you've got a high <laughs> self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what, so, 
Can I ask you though, what sort of things are in the guidelines? Like, are there twenty guidelines? One guideline? Is it a there are, there thesis? Are, there are ten guidelines, and I, I haven't committed them all to memory. But like I was saying, what the, sort of things are so how you know? So it's talking about how the therapist might deal with a man or a boy who's having uh, difficulty forming relationships. Right. Um, well, that's very a man or a boy yeah. who's having trouble um, expressing their emotions. Mm-hmm. A man or a boy is having trouble seeking medical help and so are they practical things about how to provide therapy yeah they're, they're therapeutic guidelines um, things like how to how to deal with aggression right um, and these sorts of things now of course these are really loaded you know so how to deal with aggression first you have to have a sheer, clear understanding of what is um, masculine aggression and what is violence so people may have also and i'm wary of time but um there was a gillette ad that caught social media over over summer and there's a a moment in that gillette ad where a couple of boys are um rough wrestling in at the barbecue and the dad comes over and splits them up and so the people who are antagonistic to the guidelines are saying how do you distinguish between boys wrestling and you know what looks violent can look quite violent and speaking from experience in yeah. schoolyards and that it can and be violent yeah. um and from play and so depending on the disposition of say the parent who wants to take their kid to therapy and say my kid's always getting into these wrestles and fights and things like that 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 the, you know the critics are saying that that opens the door to some serious um uh, misrepresentation of what masculinity can surely be. Surely that's just going to be a case-by-case thing, talking to the individual and saying, is this behaviour damaging you or people around you? And if it isn't, then it's fine to just excuse it as play and fun or whatever. But, but if it is hurting them or others, then it's not. But, but if, you, if you have parents whose starting point is that physical violence, what, you know, if, that they would call that violent as opposed to boys being boys... Um, then that starting point is predefining how the therapy will start or how the interaction with the health profession will start. You know, I mean, my sort of sense when I saw this and you sent it around, my first thing was it's good that they're at least having a bash. Yeah. You know, in the context of the Me Too movement and, you know, like really five years, ten years maybe in various other formats, but in particular recently on the Me Too movement, there's sort of the idea that we have to start putting some thought into this and changing the way we think about raising men and boys and whatever and, and, ha- and what responsibility people take. You know, there's been a hell of a lot of people sitting on the sidelines saying, yeah, someone should do something about that, but there's very few actual, you know, pen and paper efforts mm. to do it. Mm. So my initial thought was I don't care whether they do a shitty job round one. <laughs> at least they're having a bash. At and at least something. it'll begin the conversation and at least professors from Harvard will come out and say what's good and bad about it and at least we'll start talking about it as a community and then maybe round two will be a little bit better. That was yeah. my that was my yeah. initial yeah. sense. So that's why I didn't click and have a look at the guidelines and I thought I'll wait and see. Yeah. Hey, but that's interesting. We're gonna, we are going to have to move on yep. though time-wise. That's a hats off. We might do that. I mean, that's a heads up. I'm mixing up my heads up and my hats off. <laughs> <laughs> and um, So we're going to... Uh, Go to a break. We are going to come back with uh, Catherine Devaney, writer, author, what, they're the same thing, comedian, now politician, who's going to talk a little bit about her experience of running writing workshops um, for people with cancer. So stay tuned. Radiotherapy 3 Triple R. You listen to myself, do a little panel beater, cyber sue and trainer wheels. And now have a listen to this. 3 Triple R. And we are back. It's radiotherapy. It's 10.23. It's Sunday morning. I'm Dr. Doolittle. To my right is 
panel beta. To my left is Trainer Wheels and Cyber Sue. And just in the studio is our special guest for today, Catherine Devaney. Now, I always write a little intro so I don't get it wrong, but I'm just holding up the paper for proof. No intro today, because I know Catherine so well that I figured I could wing it. <sighs> Catherine Devaney is a writer, comedian, public speaker. More recently, she's added politician to her um, suite of activities. She's a campaigner for all things that, uh, really, she's got an opinion on everything, which we love. Um, and, and, I sp- and I met Catherine, I was saying before, because I did her writing course called Gunners Writing Masterclass about five years ago, and then that ended up in us writing a book together called Mental. So that's my way of doing a dis- uh, disclosure. And I work at Peter Mac, which is th- links to that. So disclosures aside, welcome, Catherine. I'm just delighted to be here. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. Can we keep saying that or are we in February now? So... No, I reckon say it. It's okay. supposed to be Chinese New Year, so now we've got yeah, it. Oh, yeah. well, I looked that up yesterday. Chinese New Year is like the 7th of Feb. It's Tuesday night, right. I think. Year of the pig. Yeah. Is it? Yep. Oh. <laughs> it means no eating pig for a year. Oh, no. Is that right? No, Definitely. surely it means Definitely. you eat more. Please. The <laughs> anyway, the reason we got Catherine in today, because you've spoken in here about writing before, but we wanted to take the particular... Um, you know, we wanted to look at this fact that last year you ran writing masterclasses for people with cancer. and Because we've talked once a couple of times over the years about writing as a therapy for health in general. Um, so that, that was the sort of the impetus of getting you in today. So can you begin by telling us a little bit about um, the uh, um, course that you ran for people with cancer? So there's a woman who works at the World Being Centre at Peter Mac. She runs it. She's the um, she's a supreme being there. Her name is Jerry McDonald, and she's an amazing woman who I've known since I was about 20. We knocked around together back then, and we kind of lost contact. We saw each other around. Then Steve and Jerry end up working together, and Jerry's like, oh, you know, Dev, that writing class, I've been thinking about getting these into the World Being Centre for um, Peter Mac. So we'd been discussing this and there was possibility that we might get funding for this year. So we'd been having a conversation and one of the things that popped up in my feed was an award called the the Paul Kalanithi Award. So Paul Kalanithi was a, um, a surgeon who died of lung cancer and he wrote an amazing memoir um, called When Breath Becomes Air. Mm-hmm. So there's now a fellowship in his, like a writing award in his name. It's for people experiencing life-limiting illnesses. So it's for carers, for um, people caring for them and also people who are living with these life-limiting illnesses. So I just sent it to her and I said, look, there might be someone, because she talked about particular people who come into the world being centre who she thought would be really into the idea of um, writing uh, workshops and they'd really enjoy it. And I said, look, if there's anyone in there at the moment, the the cutoff is the 1st of December. So if they want to apply and, you know, put a piece in. And she was like... <gasps> It's September now. Quickly, I'm going to see if I can, you know, shake some trees and get some money so we can do this now leading into this. And we got um, two full classes and so I had to work out what I was going to do. So we did um, three over three weeks and there was two classes who did the same. So the first week was called uh, um, Get Started. The middle class was called Keep Going and the third class was called Finish It. And when we'd been talking about this, I said, you know, they were saying um, carers and patients and I said, and staff. 
and they went, and they went, oh, really? And I go, yeah, of course, and stuff, because the way that I'd seen it, because I've been a professional writer for 25 years, and what makes that extraordinary is the fact that I came from total disadvantage, total, um, like, I'm, I'm, I'm barely a mammal, I'm functionally illiterate, I'm incredibly lazy, and I'm actually dyslexic, and I've been, and I have made a living out of words for my whole life. So that doesn't sound like the typical background of what you think a professional writer would be. And anything that anyone's ever told me about writing is not the way I've ever done it. So I started these Gunners Writing Masterclasses and I've done so many, like I've had 4,000 people through since 2014. I really, it's the thing that I'm I'm very, very good at, and it's particularly teaching people, writing to people who don't think they can do it. And a lot of people can write some kind of stuff. So, for example, the the staff members who come, they do a lot of communication and often writing corporate stuff or academic stuff, but there's this heart stuff, this other stuff, this passion writing that they want to do. And sometimes it's children's book or erotica or memoir or just getting stuff off their chest. Sometimes people just say, I don't want to publish anything. I just want to write clearer and feel better and enjoy the cathartic experience of writing. So, you know, like when you run a writing course, it's about basically how to get words out of your head and onto the page and how to become a writer and how to, you know, unblock all the blockages. It's a creative enemy, I think you sometimes mm, call it. That's what I um, call it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, bend so, over, assume the position, yeah. here comes some vitamin dev just that, where you don't expect it. And that, that's exactly why I lined up for it, of course. Um, and uh, that, so my, my question is... All of a sudden, this course is also about helping people um, who are suffering. So there's a, there's a health aspect. Did you change it in any way? Because now, in, as well as having the goal of the creative enema, it's now got the goal, um, um, maybe, to help people who are sick. Yes, the, the way that I changed it was, you know, you've got to read the room and I, before I went in, because I've had cancer and I've, like most of us, like I think, Steve, you said like one in three of us are going to end up with cancer. Something like that in the in the course just of our life. Trying to remember my stats. It's at least one in three. S- yeah, something it's the like that. Commonest cause of so death. It always r- rates up there. With there's no disease, one so. who hasn't been touched by it. No. So the the number one thing that I said was, no one's going to mention cancer in this room. I don't want you talking about cancer in any way, shape, or form. If you want to, you can write about it. But because it sometimes becomes a real part of people's identity, and I think that that is unhealthy. For it to be the whole of their identity, and some people want to get away from it. That's a lot a of people. Pretty radical first up, but I, I like. I it. know this do you, because. Do you get pushback? Do you get pushback? No, they were so relieved. They were so relieved, and it meant that they could, um, because they're at the cancer hospital doing this cancer thing, and I just went, I don't want anyone to talk about cancer. I have got a really close friend, and her mum had got um, uh, multiple myeloma about 10 years ago. And when she told me, I loved her mum, I said, I promise you I'm not going to ask about your mum, but I'll always want to hear about it. She said, I don't understand. I said... You see, as soon as there's cancer going on, people will be crossing the road to want to talk cancer, 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 cancer. And you might just be having a lovely time where you've just forgotten about it for a minute. So I don't think it's healthy for cancer to become someone's entire or any kind of anything, whether it's celebrity. Mm. There shouldn't be anything that overtakes. You know, can I say, you know, I agree with that. That's been one of my observations of working at Peter Mac for two years. And that's one of the reasons I took six months off. (laughs) You know, seriously, you know, because it's cancer, there's no letting up. If no. someone rings you at nine o'clock at night and says there's a problem, you can't say no because it's, it's it's fucking cancer. Yeah, and um and you get that. And they were going to call it the Peter McCallum fucking <laughs> cancer. cancer center. Actually, 
But I, I, I said no, Steve. No, I don't think that that's. Cool. But I, did I tell you recently? I went to have a tooth operation done, and oh, the orderly. I only heard about it seventeen yeah. times. But the orderly who was wheeling me in said, "Where do you work, mate?" And I said, "Oh, Peter Mac." And he said, "Oh, I used to work there." He said, "I tell you." He said, "Oh, great place." But I tell you, I love working at this hospital because you know at least some of the cases are mild, like like a tooth operation by you. It's not always. I'm so serious. And so I, I think that's a great thing. And I also was very aware of the staff. I didn't want the staff... The staff might have wanted to come in and talk about... Write about their lives and other things that had gone on that had nothing to do with cancer, but dealing with their own happiness, sadness, ups, down. And I didn't want them to be bombarded by someone going, oh, yeah, you're, you know, you're an oncologist or you work you know, in prostate cancer or whatever. So that's what I did. But I have to say, I mean, I've done a lot of things in my life... It was absolutely... It's one of my career highlights. So I'm delighted we've got a little bit more funding to run um, three classes. So it'll be one class, one group that will be doing three classes in March. And um, my understanding is we've got... I'm going to be doing one in Bendigo because Peter Mac has yep. a, a breakout, like a, a satellite, satellite, satellite centre there. Yep. So coming up, it's going to be in March. If you are a um, patient, carer or staff member at Peter Mac, um, probably the best way to, um, the easiest way for you to um, find out the information is just to go onto my website, go into classes, and you can see the information there. It's also on Peter Mac's, isn't it? It, it is, but it's, I just, it's, a, it's actually just a bit harder to find. I'll just tell you when the sessions are. Uh, Wednesday the 6th of March, these are all 10 to 1. Uh, Wednesday the 13th of March and Wednesday the 20th of March. Now, you mightn't be able to do those dates if you are interested because hopefully we'll get a little bit bit more funding. We're hoping to run two more blocks of these. Please contact uh, wellbeingcentre at petermac.org. If you get lost, I'm going to put it straight up on my Twitter and on my Facebook, but also go to my website, katherinedevney.com, go to classes and all the info is there. And I'll put it on radiotherapy at triple R on Facebook too. So, Catherine, do you have to be a Peter Mac patient or staff, anything to do with Peter Mac to go to those classes? Yes, you do. And there have been cheeky, cheeky, cheeky people trying to get in from... You have to have a UR number as a patient or a... um, a, a, The the cheeky people who have been trying to get in are all at private hospitals. And I'm delighted because I'm absolutely anti-private anything and I love the fact that it's going, no, no, this is for the public patients, so you can enjoy your glass of wine in your private room. um, So you don't have wine? in your classes? Look, what happens in the classes stays in the classes, to be honest, but it's just, it's an amazing group and I'm I'm not sure, it's a a similar cross-section to um, the people who come to Gunners as far as demographics go. There's something so special about running the ones at um, Peter Mac. Catherine, what Run us through what a typical session would look like. What's involved? Um, Say with the, with the with the opening beginner or get it started. I think you call it. It's kind of it's so it would be um, me introducing myself, me getting people to do um, writing exercises that will be guided, semi guided. Sometimes I'll be giving prompts. Sometimes I'll be giving time limits. Sometimes I'll be telling them to stick on one subject. Um, it's a process. I mean, writing is like therapy. Mm. It's about creating a narrative that makes sense to yourself. So if I can get these people in the room where they can't be distracted or jump onto, you know, Facebook or comments threads or looking for frocks or pets or being a hypochondriac and Googling your tooth problem, Steve, <laughs> um, if, I can, if, I can get, if I can get them there and get them to feel what it's like to write and to not just go towards the distraction and the procrastination, then the stuff starts to come. So there'll be then that 
everything kind of opens up. People ask questions that will lead me on to um, give my, you know, 20 commandments, the the myths and all the rest of it. So it's, um, you know, me talking, people asking questions, me answering, and between that are these um, guided and semi-guided writing um, exercises and no one has to share. This is the most important thing about any of, the, any of my gunners I run retreats to nobody has to share because I say it's none of your business what anyone thinks of your work. It's none of your business what you think of your work. What is your business is what you think of yourself about how much effort did you put in? How much did you um, stop yourself unpacking the dishwasher and made sure that you did just 10 minutes of writing before you got cracking on the rest of your day? Because so many writing courses and particularly in academia, nothing drags writing creativity and imagination out of people more than putting it into a school or a tertiary institution. So if they are their own self-sourcing pudding, they stop being so critical about their work. Catherine, we've had on the show uh, people from Peter Mac and other places that do things like um, music therapy or art therapy and things like that. And from what I understand from those guests, they'll work in association with the clinician. Is there a connection with the clinicians and in the work here? I'm not, I'm, not that I know of, um, but we are, our plan is for, because we had this deadline of the Paul Kalanithi Award, we've got all of these people, most of them submitted to it, and then they also submitted to me. We are hoping to put together a publication right. at Peter Mac uh, with this writing and some other writing. Again, we, it's, you know, funding, in, incumbent on funding. But I think if we do get this up, there might be a bigger conversation about the clinicians and the patients. And I think that'd be that challenging, works. though, because, you know, my understanding from Jerry McDonald, who you were talking about before, is, you know, she's been designing and working and remodelling and evolving this wellbeing centre for the last couple of years now. But she seems to draw a pretty clear line between clinical processes and processes that are about your wellbeing. It almost, and it's a challenge at times, because the moment you start saying that it's a clinical process... There's 8,000 hospital policies and guidelines that just diminish it. And things like music therapy and art therapy have, like, decades of um, university background and professionalism, and and so it's easier for them. But we don't actually do bibliotherapy or whatever you'd call it. Can I just add to the biblio... So part of what you've been talking about is helping people. The other part of it that interests me is the legacy work, and and I know the music therapists do this too, so do the art therapists, so people might make a song, legacy, for their children. Children or for the people they leave behind. Was there a legacy element in some of the writing that people there chose? Was a, there was a little bit, but because I was... The, the whole focus on anything that I do about writing is about you, is about you creating a narrative that makes sense to you so you feel better, so you empty your brain, so you get it on paper. They're, they got it down, and I think some of them said, thought that they were going to be writing it for my grandchildren, my partner, yep. people who have gone through this. But because of the way that I run it, it just... All they had to end up focusing on was their own voice, their own story, and being as authentic as they could. And so I think many of them didn't really want to share it. Some of them were happy to share it, share it, but with anonymous, they didn't want to use their name. So they went so deep. If you're thinking about an audience, and, and if you're thinking about particularly people that you love, you you skew it a bit, and you play towards the audience, not wanting to, you know, probably amplifying things and diminishing other things. So 
Not so much, but ask me what happens with this next class because there might be a little bit more in that. I think that a lot of people come in and they, they to any of the classes that I go that I write, and they go, I'm going to write this because I want people to know this and I want to, to um, broadcast this. But when they get in there, it's more important for them to tell the truth for themselves. And there is a place where you can sit down and do the, the downdraft, the first draft, to get it down, and you can absolutely just blurt and vomit and just write like no one's going to read it, write like you going to be dead in six months right like your, your family are never going to you know are never going to even know that this exists and then you can stand back and go okay that's a little harsh or that's a little revealing or I feel a bit more uncomfortable about that but and that's when you can pull back and and do a, a, a beautiful edit so it can be not gratuitously emotional or traumatic but tell a story all the same and um Catherine my mum's coming to do your course so can't um, wait I know and I think she's nervous but excited great is she in because I do them all around so is she going to be in Melbourne at at Melbourne great yeah lucky her yeah and I think that one of the things for her that was exciting is that it's not necessarily an OT or a therapy type of thing it's it's just about coming and writing and having that opportunity and actually taking the cancer out of it and just being the person yeah yeah that's what I love about the wellbeing centre um one final question from uh oh me um (laughs) what what about people who aren't at Peter Mac? I know you, you say you're anti-private. Anyone who's sick deserves help. Mm. Why can't they... Why, have you thought about running your Gunners Writing Masterclasses for specific groups like yeah, those with cancer? I have, and I've done like some that, before. But... If you are in an organisation or a hospital and you would like to book me to come in, I would be delighted, even if it is a uh, private hospital, I will just be charging the private hospital rate. But, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am a woman with a mortgage and a rego, so, you know... If you got funds, I'll, I'll, I'll be there. If, if you've got funds, she's got talent. I'm just—I am just a carny. I just turn up. I just—I was, I was down at Rye. Is that where the carnival is down yes, there? Yes, the Rye Carnival. Although so, it's closed yeah. up now. Although there's because I live down at Rye. Um, but uh, yeah, it's I'm a word up. carny. But yeah, I'd love to. I've got to say, I have particularly enjoyed. This week in hospital, I love hospitals because I grew so up. So do I. Oh, I, I do. It. You do. I've been there thirty years. Thirty years I go to hospital. This my all my work. I love it. But because I, I grew up in a really chaotic household, yeah. Hospitals, libraries, and schools, I just find so calming because mm. it's so organised and people are doing their thing. Yeah, it's like a whole little um, town just you know built in those walls. Hey, uh, thanks for coming in, Catherine. Can't Debbie. wait. Can't wait. Do I go through it all again? No, right, no. You can just yeah. hop onto Dev. yeah my my website or, or my social media or petermac.org or petermac.org if or you, radiotherapy triple R Facebook page. Yeah, and if you get lost, just come to my house, knock on the door, and we'll sort something out. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. G'day, we're back. It's Radiotherapy. It's 3 Triple R. It's Sunday morning. It's 10.48. You've got myself, Dr. Doodle. You've got Dr. Panel Beta. You've got Dr. Trainee Wheels. <laughs> but most importantly, we have Cyber Sue, our nurse specialist who is interested in emerging technologies and health. And you are going to talk us through something that has caught your interest today. I sound so serious. Over to you, Cyber Sue. Thank you very much. So I've got a lot of pressure on me after Catherine's fantastic I know. <laughs> yeah. Under pressure, been milling, go on. Yeah. Now, um, so what I want to talk about is um, telehealth. Yep. Now, telehealth, people think it's all about video technology, but actually it's not. It's changing the way that people get their, their health care and it's changing the way we deliver our health care. 
in using digital telehealth, it's about bringing together people and data in a way that we never have really been able to before. Mm -hmm. And typically in Australia, we use that, um, we're talking about video consultation, but it also means data sharing, it means home monitoring, it's making better use of our personal data from Fitbits and so on. Really? You include all of that sort of stuff in telehealth? Well, in digital health. And, um, you know, as um, in Parkville Precinct, for example, we're all getting an electronic medical record over the next two years, and it really creates opportunity in really personalising healthcare and working across different health services and sharing that information. And it sounds very boring, but it's really... It really can um, make big difference and transform people's um, people's lifestyles, and especially when they've got a chronic illness or an acute illness, when they live in the country or they have trouble accessing services. But also for um, people in in the city who also getting across town, getting through traffic, and so on. Um, and working a little bit more sensibly. I think the challenge is people understanding the breadth of what digital health and telehealth and these things can do. That's the biggest challenge. When you go and sit in, you know, these seminars on the future of healthcare, Mm. one, you realise two things. One, that we're already pretty much got incredible technology compared to 30 years ago. And already there's lots of evidence that things like Google can diagnose medical conditions better than, you know, there's one study that compares, you know, you walk into an emergency department and Google does an estimate of what's likely to be wrong with you based on your search, the searches that you've done, the area that you're in, the immunisation rates in your community, all this data that Google have versus the doctor who takes an inter- or who takes a, does some questions with you um, when you get there. Google's probably better. So... You know, not to mention the things like the little, um, you know, you mentioned the personal health data. Now, there's already stuff that you can, like, get implanted under your skin that can monitor this, that and the other thing. We already had it for, have it for diabetes. You know, you can monitor various stuff for diabetes in real time and it can. we have things that can run your heart. Um, it's the run breadth heart, of people. No yeah, they do. Well, well, we've got fake hearts. Yes, true. So we've got, what do they call ventricular? Ec- uh, oh, anyway, they're ec- fake hearts. They're mechanical hearts. Mm. And, you know, you carry around a little computer and it's pumping the blood around in your body. I, I did some of the original psych assessment on those patients about 15, 20 years ago. Um, it's fascinating stuff. So back to you. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I kind of look at four big benefits of using telehealth and digital health. And yep. these are things like, for example, reduce, and I'll talk about them a little bit if you want to, but mm-hmm. reduce inequities to access to healthcare. And we know that there's big differences in health outcomes for people in the country, for example, compared to the city, life expectancy, um, early diagnosis and so on. Um, we um, need to be more clever about the way we provide health in a more efficient way. And telehealth can um, um, improve the efficiencies by working with our colleagues in the country. That's by... probably been the one that people grip onto the most. And especially even we even have now people who live in the city, not the city, but say the suburbs who want to use telehealth because Absolutely. you come into a public hospital now, you hit for about somewhere between 10 and $30, depending on who you are, for parking, um, plus all the time of getting in there, whereas you can flick on your computer if you know how to do it from home. And, and you imagine if you're undergoing um, cancer treatment and um, you're not particularly well and yeah. then you have to hop into town in the, that big roundabout with the big flag or mm. you have to get on the And tram. sometimes ten appoint- you know, sometimes multiple appointments a week. Well, so, for example, um, I mentioned earlier that my mum was a, pa- a Peter Mac pe- patient two years ago and in one year um, she kept a track of her appointments. There was 119 contacts with the hospital in one in year. In one year, in one, one year. every three days. Holy yeah. moly. And, you know, that's... All that's physical contact, all on-site. 
So all of those were on site, not at wow. Peter Mac or in other health services mm. and so on. And obviously you can't do all of those by telehealth. You know, there's a lot, a lot of that that has to be face-to-face. But we have to be a bit more savvy about thinking about what we can do in different yep. ways. It's um, better patient experience as well. So that was your first. What was your next? You said you had so, four. So we've got the reducing inequities. We've got the being more efficient. We've also got actually improving health outcomes. Yes. And this goes back to that um, earlier diagnosis. And again, we know because people, don't, people who don't access health care early enough, if you don't get an early enough diagnosis, your outcomes are more um, are not likely to be so good um, if you don't get access to a specialist early and so on. And the fourth one is the patient experience. What about the obvious thing that um, the, what are the disadvantages? You know, so obviously the patient's not in the room with you. You can't see them you know, quite... You can't examine them. Yeah, no. you can't you know, feel their heart. You can't see how they walk in necessarily. How do you overcome those sorts of challenges? Yeah, well, I think that's, that raises a really important aspect of telehealth, and that's the partnerships with our um, with our regions. And for example, at Peter Mac, um, our professor of haematology, Kate Burberry, is a really um, massive advocate and driver of this, and that's getting people back to the community. And that involves actually us working with medical colleagues in the community and nurse practitioners in Wimmera, for example. We've got an amazing nurse practitioner, Carmel O'Kane, who um, uh, run, looks after a whole bunch of resource nurses in the community who can do a lot of that local um, assessments, physical assessments, psychosocial support, and a whole lot of stuff um, with the support and expertise of the specialist. So you're right, there's a disadvantage that we can't examine, but there's a potential benefit from that as well. I, um, I'm seeing parallels here, and, and I'm, I'll, be st- I'll stand corrected if they're not really parallels, but uh, the way that universities have treated online education. Mm-hmm. And initially it was dealt with for very many of the same reasons. You wanted to give people access who couldn't physically get to campus. But the bean counters kind of got hold of it, and they started hearing words like efficiency and cost mm-hmm. savings and things like that. Um, are there warning bells that that's where this is going? Well, people, people, it's not the angle that we pitch it, actually. And sure. so, for example, I'm sorry to speak from the Peter Mac example, but um, Medicare funds telehealth where there is um, uh, the patient is in the country and certain other rules. We, our approach is that if it's good patient care, we'll use it. And so that's not a good bean count approach. It's a good yeah. patient-centred approach. Can I add to that too? Like, I'm, I'm with you, um, panel beater, in getting cynical about the bean counters. However, I'm also aware that these beautiful new emerging technologies in health cost a fortune and we are and at the end of the day the taxpayers have to pay we have to pay yeah. and we just can't afford the amazing stuff that's on the horizon right. so we've got to come up yeah, we've sure. got to actually empower and trust the bean counters to figure out ways of making this affordable without being critical of them for yeah. bastardizing our baby at times you know what i mean yeah, sure. their heart's in the right place well, that's I'm, right, i know yeah. I'm, I'm, def- I'm defending that no but I, no I, I know, and then there's yeah. lots of good reasons why online education is really mm. good as well yeah. so i don't think it's neither or but um, just a wariness, maybe. And mm. it's also about um, we. There are so many amazing, like immunotherapies coming out that are having absolutely life-changing impacts on people. But we've got to find ways to pay for that. So mm. if there's other ways we can save money in simple ways, and honestly, I don't know that telehealth saves money. To be honest with you, in the amount that we do it, um, you know what my bigger worry is. So on the worry, um, on the worry ledger, privacy. Right. You know, I just do not trust digital privacy at this point in time. Oh. You know, I'm slightly <laughs> told you about my health record. Um, 
every and I and nothing I see at the hospitals, and I don't mean Peter Mac, I mean every hospital I've worked at, nearly every one, um, really reassures me that we've got our security, our digital privacy isn't as good as the good old days of when it was just you, your doctor or your nurse or your OT or your physio or your psychologist and a bit of paper which was locked up downstairs in the medical records department. That was kind of locked up, but kind of anyone could get in there and look at it. But you're right. But anyway, the digital stuff, Blind Freddy could hack that. I mean, I guess um, I used to work at the Children's Hospital. We bought the EMR there, and there were certain securities on who could access the medical record, and in particular the more um, private aspects of it. There was a glass... I think it was called a glass door that you had to kind of knock electronically. So people knew who was accessing what. So it's something that... The Children's has got the latest system, you know, the latest um, electronic health system. Now, I heard you mention before you were going to get that too. Yes. But, um, you know, we're getting there. The privacy is... In fact, my health record, one of the great things about government, my health record, is it's highlighted privacy concerns and it's making everyone smarten themselves Mm. up. Mm. Training wheels, question for you. Ooh, yes. Focus. <laughs> oh, I love it when medical student gets, gets asked the question. It's giving me PTSD award round here. Is anything resembling this featuring in uh, curriculum? Um, Great question. Yeah, that is a good question. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. There, there is a bit of a push for this e-portfolio thing, which is not quite the same but it's i mean there is a focus on us learning how to use we do have assessment practices which are preparing us for electronic health but they're not training you in it like i remember when i was a medical student going back to the 15th century you know like for example we were trained in how to work with an interpreter are you trained in how to work with um digital technology um telehealth no no I think it's such a great question and it's so important. And so um, in the telehealth community, my um, colleague at the Royal Melbourne, Carrie Long, has been working a lot with the different universities and they are starting to bring it into curriculums, but they are it, it is a long way to go. Um, at Melbourne University, we're about to do some lectures for the advanced nursing practice. Mm. Um, Allied Health, there's a big potential there, but getting in with um, medical students, I think it's absolutely about upskilling the future workforce. Yeah. And, you know, if, if everyone's using it on their phones, on the trams, at home, and so then you come to work and we stop using it, and it's ridiculous. Yeah, that is weird. I guess yeah. the short answer is in the green room, CyberSue asked me if I knew what telehealth was, and I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have not come across it. I've not physically come across it. I've heard about it, but not come across it. Hey, we're going to have to wind up because those brilliant scientists from Einstein and GoGo are also preparing for their first show for 2019, yet another Happy New Year coming your way. Hey, special thanks to everyone who's uh, contributed to this hour. I'm Catherine Devaney, of course, who was in here talking about her Gunners Writing Master class for cancer um panel beater your work on masculinity your work in general you're managing the panel of course beautiful Just painter brilliant. um <laughs> yeah, that's trainer wheels i don't know what the, oh you yeah, go I, I, I lost the reference for a second <laughs> trainer is it's good to see you back here um five months of babyhood hasn't done you any harm your brain's as sharp as ever of mm. course why wouldn't it be except that you're a bit tired um and of course cyber sue thanks for telling us all about um telehealth and the emergence technologies um we will be back next week in the meantime enjoy your week don't forget to jump onto um our Facebook page, Radiotherapy at Triple R. Of course, always go to Triple R's website too. See what's coming up. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.